Tandem Nomads, episode 89. Have you ever asked yourself these questions? What is my legacy? What is my purpose? What am I set to achieve in my life? What is my vision for this world? And how can I contribute to it? Hello, Nomad Nation. This is Emel Deregi. I'm your host and a business and marketing coach and the founder of Tandem Nomads, the entrepreneurship platform designed to help expat spouses around the world turn their career challenges into a successful, portable business. In the previous episode, I shared with you my three pillars to build a system in your life and your business to be inspired, creative, and on top of your game. I shared with you the importance uh, to be inspired and to also make sure to absorb all the amazing stories around us that can really help us be creative in our own business. So that's why in this episode, I brought to you one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard related to expat spouses building amazing projects. I'm going to share with you in this episode the story of the Shell Ladies Project. And I must say that although in Tandem Nomads we're very much focused in helping expat partners build a profitable business, I do think that um, non-profit projects can be as important as profitable businesses, especially if they grow enough to really make an impact and to be able to create jobs and make a difference in this world. So we can get inspiration out of non-profit projects and this is why I brought to you this story. Also, I have been really looking forward to share this story with you because for me it illustrates the power of starting small while having a big vision and this can be really inspiring for you in your business or NGO it does not matter what you're undertaking I think that's one of the magics uh, that um, of really believing what we're doing but just starting with what we can do and I want to show you how this was possible here with this story to turn a simple idea into a worldwide legacy for all of us and especially us global nomads and global citizens. So our guest today is Sarah Bringers Familia, and she works at the Expat Archive Center. She knows so much about uh, how this legacy has been created. I met Sarah when I was at the FIGT conference, and I uh, attended to one of her presentations and just was blown away by the story behind the center, and I really wanted to bring it to you. So Sarah, thank you for being here, and are you ready for the ride? Thanks for letting me come. I am ready. Fantastic. So Nomad Nation, Sarah, as I mentioned, works at the uh, part-time at the Expat Archive Center, but she also has an amazing global nomad life that I will let her talk about because <laughs> there's no way to summarize it. But um, if you want to know more about her on top of her work at the Expat Center, she has also in her past on everything from export manufacturing companies working there to being a homeschooling stay-at-home mom to working full-time in marketing and currently on top of the expat um, archive center she serves on the editorial board of the high high right magazine which is a non-profit digital magazine and podcast that explores migration and homecoming via the literally lit 
literary, sorry, visual and performing arts. Very interesting. <laughs> and Sarah also blogs about her international adventures at castelluzzo.com in search of a dream to call home. So Sarah, I tried to summarize a little bit about who you are. Is there anything I miss? And tell us a little bit about your story. Okay. Well, I think you did pretty well hitting all the main points. I, the where are you from question, I usually answer with California. That's where I grew up. And I always was fascinated with other cultures. But the first time I got to actually go abroad that I remember is um, my last semester at university. I went on a study abroad to Syria. And it just opened my eyes to the fact that there's this huge world out there. And so I always, since then, have been looking for ways to get abroad and trying all sorts of different ways with varying degrees of success. So um, probably the most interesting thing that I did um, along that lines is I figured out somewhere online that my husband was eligible for Italian citizenship through his great-great-grandfather. So I collected all those birth and marriage certificates and we moved to Italy and presented them at the city hall in the little town where uh, his, his great-great-grandfather was born. And eventually, after much red tape and crying and working hard, <laughs> we were able to get him Italian citizenship, which was important to me because I really wanted to live in Europe. And so now, eventually, after many other parts of the story, here we are in Amsterdam. This is amazing. This is really amazing. I've never heard of such a story where you intentionally try to find a link to get a visa or, or find a way to live where you want to live. That's the most creative ever story I've ever heard. <laughs> Let's uh, deep dive. What is the Archive Center? Of course. So the Expatriate Archive Center is a nonprofit, independent, private archive. So it's not affiliated with a government. And what we do is we collect the life stories of expatriates from around the world. And we make them available for academic research. And those life stories come in the form of letters, diaries, photographs, video, anything that records this experience of being uh, abroad in a country that's not your own. Wow. Okay. So can you tell me right now, I'm going to be, it's, it's going to be like a kind of test question, <laughs> <laughs> but really I want to know why do you think it matters to collect these stories? That is a really good question. I think to me, it's partly that expats and these other people who are globally mobile fall through the cracks in a way. They'll have part of their story in one archive in one country and then part in another, but there's nowhere that really pulls it all together and they fall through the cracks in a way. Mm -hmm. And the research is really important because it is often research into what makes it difficult for these families or and, and, and individuals and what can be done to help them to make things easier. A lot of times companies are interested in the research or parents want to know, how can I help my kid who is bilingual or a TCK or in this different culture, what can I do to help them? And so that research directly affects people's lives when we find out what can help expats and what are the things that are important. Yeah. So before we 
I, the, the point of today's episode is really um, sharing the story of the founders of the Expatriate Aircraft Center. But I want to really make sure that we understand the power of this place before we get into it and be able to call it the legacy. Um, and one of the things I found is also, first of all, to have a place that is somehow home for us, this global nomads, a place that um, recognizes the, 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 the history of this so-called tribe. Um, but also, like you said, it's a place that researchers and, and people who actually study the field of being a global nomad to bring tools and guidance and research and, and um, can go there and find the data they need and the information they need and the stories they need. So um, is that, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely true, that it's a yeah. place where expats and other global nomads are given their rightful place in history. Yeah, definitely. I love that, their rightful place in history. That's the thing, is that we, we exist as a community somehow, even if you don't know each other. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So let's deep dive then into how it started. How did this start and who are the founders of the Expatriate Archive Center? Okay, it is just a lovely story. So it begins back in the early 1990s. There was um, the Shell Company, the, the oil and gas giant, is located in The Hague. And um, there was a group of so-called Shell wives who were, of course, the spouses of Shell employees. And Shell was actually preparing for its 100th anniversary. And they were doing all of these uh, preparations for a celebration and to commemorate all of the milestones that the company had passed. But the, the, some of the wives of the workers thought, you know what, they're not doing anything to recognize the contributions that we have made. And the, all of the support that we have given to our spouses as they have been posted all over the world in all of these um, remote places and all of the sacrifices that we have made also to make this work go forward. And since the company wasn't doing anything to commemorate that, they thought, well, you know what, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And uh, they went through a few different ideas, including making a statue to a shell wife, but in the end, they thought that the thing that would be the most meaningful would be to collect stories of women like them. And so they sent out a call to Shell wives all over the world. And Shell was at that time in over 80 countries. And they thought, well, we hope we get back at least some response. Uh, but they were overwhelmed by this extremely positive response that they got back. They got so many stories and they compiled them all into a book that they called Life on the Move, and they published this book. And again, the reception to the book was just amazing. It was published in 1993, and so this was pre-internet, and it was harder for people back at that time to really connect with other people who, who they felt like shared their story. And so they got this book, and they thought, wow, somebody understands me. Somebody has been through this same type of experience that I have, not just one person, but many, many people. And the book was so popular that they followed it up in 1996 with a second book called Life Now that also included more of these stories. And by this time, they had amassed quite a collection of stories from expat wives abroad. And they didn't want to just throw them out. They felt like it was valuable. 
And uh, by this time also another um, shell wife had joined their little group and she was actually a social historian. And she said, you know what, these documents have meaning and interest not only for those of us who are expat wives, but also for researchers who would be interested in the social history of expat life. And so with this new understanding of the larger importance of what they had been doing, they decided that they would start an archive. And uh, that is, that's basically the, 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 the nugget of the archive, the, the, the first beginnings of it. Wow, what a story. <laughs> so Nomad Nation, one thing that I want to take away from just this introduction of what it is, is that um, these ladies did not intend to create initially the Expatriate Archive Center. Everything started from really um, believing in something important and wanting to fill a void that um, they felt needed to be filled. And I think that's what most of legacies start. Most of big projects, important, impactful initiatives start is when you see a problem, you see a void, and just wholeheartedly take it in your hands and do something about it as and start with as little as you can or as big as you can, whatever you can do, just start with something. And and this is the most amazing. They just reached out to the ladies, all the spouses of the Shell Company and told them to share their stories and just compile them in a book. Just, I know there's a lot of work behind it, but, and look how that has transformed into what it is today. So tell us how many people today work there and what are the, I want to measure somehow the, the impact that the Expat Archive Center is having today? Okay, that is a really good question. Um, in the beginning, all it was really was a suitcase. So they kept all of these documents in this old suitcase that Judy Moody Stewart, one of the founders, had carried with her all around the world. And um, when, at first, they they belonged, they were kind of a part of Shell. So they belonged to the organization in Shell Outpost that supports expat families. But at some point, um, they, they believed that they needed to be independent because the stories belonged not to Shell, but to the, the families, to the people who had lived them and written them. And so that was when they became independent. And um, at that time, they had, I think, just a director and an archivist. That was it. And uh, now we have four employees. We have a director, an archivist, and uh, me. I'm the PR manager and an office manager. But then we also have anywhere at any given time from 10 to 15 volunteers. And those volunteers are really the heart of our organization. They're the ones who do the majority of the actual work of processing the archival collections and everything else that needs to be done at the archive. And without them, we really couldn't function. So, and a lot of those volunteers are also expat spouses and it becomes in a very real way, kind of a community. And as you mentioned before, it's almost like a little home away from home. It's a home for the documents, but it's also a place where people come together and uh, can share and, be with other people who have have had the same type of experience and uh, also gain some experience and something for their CV as they move forward as well. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point. And and that's exactly the the what I wanted to know is like what has what impact did it really make in people's life to have this expatriate archive center and on top to have a place and a home for all our belongings that we don't know what to do with and and uh also with you know, leaving a trace of the history we had on top of it, it has created jobs and it has created places where people can start ex having experience and, and using it for their resume. So the impact is quite big. <laughs> well, and I, I would like also to just share, if I may, a quote of from course. Judy Moody Stewart, um, just in her own words, why the archive and what it meant to her. Mm -hmm. And she said, We just want to be recognized. What we've put in to maintain the family to actually supporting the worker for the benefit of the company. If you are supporting someone who isn't happy, that really is a challenge. And as expatriates who've lived abroad, one is aware of women who've been doing that. And you think, what a contribution. And it's a sort of sisterhood. And I love that, what she says at the end, that it's a sort of sisterhood because that's what I and a lot of the other expat who work at the archive feel when we read these stories, it could be a story from 50 years ago or 70 years ago, but the experiences are so common. There's they're something that we can really relate to and this experience of living abroad and everything being new and having to figure it out all from scratch. All of those things that happen to you, they're, they're not just a 21st century phenomenon. This, this is something that you can really relate to when you read in the archive. Definitely. And thank you for sharing that powerful quote. It's just amazing. So I'll make sure to write it somewhere and leave it on the, on the show note of this episode. So this is so powerful. So let, can you tell us more now about the three ladies that founded um, the Expat Archive Center, who they are and what they're doing today? Okay. Yes. Um, Judy Moody Stewart is uh, English, and she traveled the world with her husband. He actually was the uh, CEO of Shell at the time that she uh, formed the Expatriate Archive Center, and they lived all over the world. Um, and so she is still, she's quite elderly, but she is still just involved in a lot of uh, wonderful humanitarian projects, and she's also still um the most active with the archive. She comes to all the board meetings and whenever we have an activity or an event, she comes and supports us. And she's just always there to be kind of a sounding board or to, to share. In fact, most recently uh, we are working on a project called Saudade, which is this art project at the archive. And we needed some photographs of our old suitcase, the suitcase that they used to keep the material in. And We asked her and she sent us these amazing photos of this road trip that she and her family took across the Sahara Desert. And there's the suitcase lashed to the top of their four-wheel drive vehicle. Mm -hmm. So she still feels like very much a part of the archive. And then um, Dewey White is um, American and she is a social historian. And she's still... That, that's what she still does for work. She's, she's back repatriated in the United States and um, still doing that. And then Glenda Lewin is in Australia. And she was always very much the connector of the archive, the one who um, put people together in the right way and, and brought people in who could be influential. 
And uh, she also is involved in many humanitarian projects now. So all three of the Shell, the, the Shell Ladies Project is what they called themselves in the beginning. So all three of them are, are quite um, a bit older now, but they're all just very involved in a range of causes. This is fabulous. And what I love also here to, I've tried to extract as many learning lessons from this experience for Nomad Nation. And one of the things that I noticed from uh, what you've been saying about these three ladies is that they each put in their special talents and skills to make this happen. The first one used her, um, her, her, I guess, talent to initiate project and use the fact that she was the wife of the CEO to be able to do it, I guess, and have the support of Shell. The second one was a historian, so she had the knowledge of how it works to collect stories and keep traces and, and archive things. And the third one was a great networker, um, and and she used it for the benefit of this of this ladies initially ladies uh, Shell ladies project. So I think that's another learning lesson that I would extract from what you've said. Um, I hope we'll have the chance to connect <laughs> with the, these three ladies one time. So, But I'm really happy that um, you're here to represent them. So this is really fantastic. So could you please now share with us maybe step-by-step step what has made this possible, this growth? Uh, what are the major milestones and how did it come to where it is now? Okay. Yes, definitely. So Back when they decided to officially turn it into an archive, uh, they were able to secure a uh, financial, um, a, uh, an endowment from Shell. And so that endowment, and then also Judy Moody Stewart and her husband made the decision to donate their residence in The Hague to the expatriate archive center. And so it's this beautiful old, you've been there. Wow. <laughs> it's this beautiful old building in the center of the Hague. And we occupy as the archive, the bottom floor, and then the upper floors we rent out and that provides some um, operating income for the archive. And so between interest on the endowment and, and that rent, that takes care of the day-to-day -day running expenses. We still have quite a small budget We have to um, watch our spending, which, of course, we always do. But uh, that pr allows us to continue. And then when we do have projects that we're doing that, that are kind of outside the everyday running costs, then we either apply for grants. We are a nonprofit, so uh, we can apply for grants or funds, things like that. And also we have sought uh, corporate sponsorships or The Hague, um, the city of The Hague has also um, helped out with some of our projects. So just based on what projects we're doing, we, we go out to seek that funding. Yeah. So could we go a little bit backwards and when there was the books out and then, the, and then um, they realized that we should archive, like make this an official archive, how did that transition happen? Do you know how did, I mean, besides getting the funds from Shell, um, practically what actions did they start with? Um, I think... They, I think it was a very organic process. Mm -hmm. So they, because in the beginning, none of them were archivists and they didn't really know how an archive was run. They just knew that they wanted to have one. And so they started keeping all the material together. They researched um, 
they found a program to uh, serve as the software, the management system where they could enter all of the, uh, all of the items that they had in the archive and organize them in the computer system. And they really just kind of learned by doing, they, they had um, help from other uh, shell wives who were interested in the project and who wanted to help. And really they just, um, they reached out to who they could that, that was in their network. They all had fairly extensive networks and they, they were able to just pull things together. And even when they didn't know how to do something, they just figured it out as they went along. Oh, and also the, it's amazing that learning on the field, that's for sure the best way to just do it. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and the generosity also. I mean, it's quite amazing that they donated their home. Um, yes. Well, I so, think it's a testament to how important it was to Judy Moody Stewart and how much she felt like it needed to be preserved. It needed to survive. Yeah. And she was willing to, to donate in order for that to happen. This is absolutely amazing. So when do you think the major um, birth happened? When do you think it really suddenly became what it is today? Um, well, we had in, in 2008 was when it officially became independent, when they registered it as a stifting and when Shell gave the endowment. And so I think that that's when we count as the founding day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was April 10th, 2008. And I think that after, or April 9th, sorry. <laughs> and I think that it has been after that though, a, a gradual process of professionalization because at the beginning, like I said, they didn't know how to run an archive and they did an, a fantastic, just a fabulous job of putting it together. But then in the interim during these 10 years, it's been a process of further professionalizing it and turning it into something that is really useful for researchers. And that's been very much little by little. We're right now in the process of finishing up writing all of the procedures and um, for how everything will be archived, how it will be named, uh, the procedures for um, anything from the numbering system that we use to all of the keywords that we use in order to make it accessible to researchers. It's very much just a process of thinking through, okay, this is what we want the end product to be. So let's go back step by step and see what we need to do to make that happen. Wow. So could you tell us again, how, how do you fund yourself? So we fund ourselves by this building that was donated to us. The, actually the majority of the building is a, uh, lovely apartment that we rent out. And so the rent from that provides a good portion of our operating expenses. And then also this endowment from Shell is still invested and managed by Shell, but we are able to use the interest in order to also fund the archive. And then for extra projects beyond like paying the rent and paying the employees and keeping everything running, uh, then we apply for grants. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And you then have, like you mentioned at the beginning, a huge pool of volunteers. Um, and, and it's amazing how many volunteers have been coming in and out and helping and making this getting bigger and bigger. So is there any advice and how, how do you make sure to keep, to first of all, get volunteers come to you and second, keep them engaged and, and make them still motivated to help you even if it's for free? That is a really good question. And it's something that we work very hard at because we're aware that we don't pay them. And uh, we're actually very lucky in that we often, we usually have a waiting list of people who would like to volunteer at the mm -hmm. archive. And I think that one of the reasons is that it's, it's very unique. It's different from a lot of volunteer opportunities that you can find because it really requires, it's not, just photocopying or it's very work that is uh, intellectually intensive. So there's a lot of research that our volunteers need to do. They need to be comfortable with ambiguity and with figuring things out. And also I think a big part of it is the atmosphere that we cultivate. It's a very international working environment. It's very warm. We try to be friendly. We Uh, we all eat lunch together and we have these fantastic lunch conversations that are just great. We have people from all different countries and just hearing the perspectives, it's wonderful. And then also we always keep a lot of chocolate in the archive. <laughs> oh, that's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get that chocolate. <laughs> Come back and I promise you chocolate. Come back next year. <laughs> I didn't volunteer, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> oh, another thing that we do, we pay them in chocolate and we also organize regular um I don't want to say field trips, but regular tours of uh, places in The Hague and in the, in the surrounding areas. So our last tour was we went to the library of the Peace Palace, which is in The Hague. So that's another kind of little perk that we can offer also to our volunteers. Yeah, that's amazing. So I think, first of all, if I have to, like, again, try to take some um, some wisdom from out of this i think the first thing is to start i guess with a mission statement of what you're doing and when it's powerful nomad nation usually people want to help um and when it's meaningful people want to help most of the time you just sometimes need to ask and in your case you don't need to ask anymore here because because you have a waiting list because people know already what it is um but then really cherish and nourish that community of volunteers take care of them and make sure that they know that they're appreciated um and that's very important most people actually feel more appreciated with gesture than than money so that's really important And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to know how you process. I remember you explained it so well. How does the, the expat center works? Um, and what is your work process? You have, a, you have like a methodology to archive things. And maybe you can tell us about that, but also the different roles of who that each key players have in this system you have. Yes. Archiving. Yeah, of course. So it's actually quite complex to archive something. Often we'll get a, we call it a donation. So someone will donate material and sometimes it's their own material, like their own diaries and letters, but often it might be from a parent who has retired or gone into care or passed away or a grandparent. And so sometimes when people donate material to the archive, they don't even know what it is. So the first step is really just to take out the materials, spread it out and decide, look at what it is 
um, really understand what types of documents. Is it mostly letters? Is it a lot about whatever the person's job was? Uh, does it talk about children? What What is in the material? And then, of course, also to make sure that uh, it's not going to deteriorate. So we take out any staples, we make sure there's no mildew, uh, just basically, and put it into our archival uh, boxes and folders that are acid-free. And that's the first step. And then it, it, it can sit in those for a while if there's not time right then to process it further, but it's safe, it's, it's not going to deteriorate. Uh, and then when its turn comes to be further cataloged, then we go ahead and um, start making a list of everything that's there. We make descriptions. Uh, We figure out if there's some kind of structure to the collection that the person who made it, um, maybe they put it in chronological order or order by country. I'm going to interrupt you just one second because it's really interesting. I think it will help to project if you could give an example of a donation, a type of object or uh, to illustrate, because that's really interesting. Yeah, of course. So um, some of the collections are huge, some are small. So it could be as as small as maybe two letters that, that someone wrote to an expat or that an expat wrote home. Or in the case of, I just, I'm in the process of donating my collection to the archive. Mm-hmm. So I have everything from emails that I printed out way back in the day when emails were kind of new <laughs> and uh, several diaries. I have a lot of letters that I sent back and forth. Um, and I have some like brochures from places that I visited or tickets to events that I went to, or even like train tickets, plane tickets It can be really, and of course, photographs. Um, I also donated my blog. We do collect blogs as well. Um, and so it's it's really, and, oh, and even some video. I donated a video that my husband's family made when he was a kid and they lived in Indonesia. So it's like a trip to the wild animal park and their pet monkeys. So really a collection can be, It can be five boxes or it can be very small. Um, but that's the type of material. Or digital, I, I noticed. Yes, you yes. Can, you have digital archive too. Yeah, and in fact, farther along down the process, so once everything is all uh, described, then it also gets entered into our system, our computer system, mm-hmm. and it also gets scanned. So every single document gets scanned and then that scanned record is linked to uh, the descriptions of it in the database so that it can be found. And then everything is given, the physical material is given those same numbering and put into the physical archive. And so then researchers can find it both in our online system, in our computer system, and then also they can access the actual physical material if they need to. Sometimes they just read the digital material. So in a sense, we also accept digital material, but we, we do digitize all of the physical material that we receive. And so really the whole collection, at least it's not digitized yet, but um, everything will be digitized. We do not collect anything that is not paper-based. And so we, we do have people donate, say like audiovisual material, But what we do is we, we have that digitized in an outside source 
And then we give the originals back of that digital material Mm -hmm. um, to those people because it takes completely different conditions to keep safe film or those types of things safe. And uh, we really only have the resources for paper-based products. And the same with if people have objects, say like um, a little statuette or money that they collect in another country, we unfortunately don't collect those types of objects. It's all, because it's an archive and not a museum, Mm. it's all based on written sources. So even photographs, we only will collect if they also have some kind of written description so that we know what they are of. Yeah, I can understand that. So now it's it's clear. And so maybe one day it will move into a museum. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Well, and if people don't or try to donate things that we don't accept, then we do try to help them find another location that would accept them. So if it maybe there's part of the collection that doesn't deal with expat life, or if they do have objects, then we have connections with other museums and archives and we try to find a home for them. Which is amazing. So how, how, I mean, the house is is big and nice, but did you ever think of what if one day you just run out of space? (laughs) Yes. In fact, we already are running out of space, which is in, in some ways a wonderful problem to have. So back when the house was donated, we had a, an archival room built into it. So it's kind of like a bunker no windows, it's all made of concrete so that it can be well insulated and um, the climate and the temperature can be monitored. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have already outgrown that. It's full. And so the material that is less often used, we keep at another location that has the same types of um, the st- same types of control over the climate and the temperature. Okay, so you have another ex- like another rent to pay to make sure. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think eventually we hope that we'll be able to move into a larger space. But at this point, our endowment and the 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 money that we have to to run on an everyday basis doesn't allow us to expand in that way. So we have to try to expand how we can uh, mm-hmm. make do in our space. So Nomad Nation, if you can hear of anybody who might have interest in helping out, I think <laughs> yes, <is> please. <laughs> we should really support it if there's any way to support it, because this is a huge, I really believe, legacy that we're leaving for what is the, you know, the, the lifestyle of so many people and, and that makes it a nation by itself, I find. So uh, that is not really... Um, considered as, and I think there's an amazing beauty in the stories that have been shared um, to show how our world is connected. And I think that's what I made me really um, get emotionally attached to what you do is to s- the stories that you shared during that meeting um, that just shared that it's just one big world that we live in and the expats are the connectors between cultures and they actually when move to a country to another take pictures and keep records they're just showing you know other aspects of the world that we might not know about so i think that's also something that i think it's really important yeah for sure i would like to know if anyone wants to donate something you already explained what you take but how does it work if somebody wants to contribute to the center What we start with is just finding out from you what it is that you want to donate to make sure that it does fall within our guidelines of what what we do accept. And then if we determine that, yes, it is a good fit, 
then we have a special donation agreement that you fill out that just tells about you and about the piece and that where you where you lived and when you lived abroad, just all of that important information. And then you just agree that you are donating it to the archive, that it can be used in academic research. And um, then we have an agreement with a shipping company that ships from all over the world. So they'll ship it to us for free, no matter where you live. So um, that is really helpful for us too. And that's a way also that we cover costs by trying to make partnerships with other companies that realize the value of what we're doing and that are willing to provide us in-kind services, either at a discounted rate or for free. So that's really helpful also. So then, um, yeah, once it arrives at the archive, then we process it. So where's the best way to to reach you? Um, You can either contact us on our website. We have a contact form at uh, expatarchive.com, or you can just email me. It's pr at expatarchive.com. And that's expat just with the X without the E at the beginning. Okay. So Nomad Nation, I'll put all these information in the webpage of this episode. So make sure to check it out if you're interested. And Sarah, do you have anything you would like to add regarding this amazing legacy that's been um, that's been created? And what would be your insight about that? Um, well, I would like to read one more quote from G. Judy Moody Stewart, because I think she really sums up partially the importance of the archive and what we collect. And she says, what we are chronicling with this are the roots of globalization, because we, our families, are the people who made it possible. And I like to think of that being the legacy of the archive, this idea that we are all connected as citizens of planet Earth. And sometimes we feel very closed off. I think people feel very closed off in their own little community or their own little country and they don't look wider, but we as expats and as global nomads are the ones who are kind of bridges who move around, who can tell people that no, we're all the same. We all, we all love, we all, we all want the same things for our families. We all are trying to fulfill our dreams and hopefully we can all live in peace. And I think that's something that we know intuitively as expats and that we can share with the world. Yeah, it's amazing. Really amazing. And I love what you said. There's two things that I want to highlight. The quote is amazing. And that's, I don't say it as beautifully, but I always, always, every time I have to speak or anything, said that the globalization as we know it today would never happen without all these spouses who gave up their own dreams and their own careers to be able to support these companies' plans and sending their, their employees abroad. So those employees would never go if their families wouldn't follow. So that's the first thing. So I think we do not um, realize the impact that the spouses had in the globalization and expansion of so many businesses. That's the first thing. And, and the second is this interconnected world that the Expat Archive Center is having this huge role to play here too. So you've seen so many, you know, letters and books and, and, and things like that. So is there like a book related to this topic that you would recommend to the nomination? And yes, I do have a book that I would recommend. It's a book that we at the archive wrote a chapter for. It just came out at the beginning of this year. It's called Global Mobilities, Refugees, Exiles, and Immigrants in Museums and Archives. <gasps> and so it's, yes, it's fabulous. 
it has stories of archives and museums all over the world that you probably have never heard of because maybe they're small like us, but it's just wonderful to see mobile people represented in so many ways. Um, and so we have a chapter about the archive in this book, and it's really a lot along the lines of what we've been talking about, about this legacy that the Shell Ladies Project left and the way that even though they wouldn't have maybe viewed it as a feminist undertaking, the way that they really were kind of writing a counter history to this history of the company being so important and this idea that they had also made a contribution. So that's, that's really what, what the chapter is about, about the fact that mm-hmm. history needs to also include those who supported and those who helped and those who came with and made it possible behind the scenes. That's amazing. And I think you mentioned that you had a quote about this topic. Yes, it's this wonderful quote. I feel like a lot of times people think that expat life is this endless vacation and just all wonderful. But there is the other side that is important to also tell. And we have in the archive a lot of stories of homesickness or of the negative things that can also happen. And it's important to have this kind of balanced view of how it is. But this is this is from an expat. This was actually included. Um, she sent it in as for one of the books that were written originally that the archive is based on. And this is what she says. Life here is good, but there is another side to this scenario, one which is rarely appreciated by visitors who come for short stays and see only the picture postcard sunsets, the golden beaches, and the sporting facilities. There's a strong sense of isolation since the only way in and out is on the turboprop Fokker friendships, which fly to and from Cushing via Bintulu's small airport. The small expat community can be very claustrophobic. Missing the folks back home, be they young children at boarding school, students coping with further education, or elderly parents falling ill can sometimes induce awful depressions And everyone needs to be very sensitive to her neighbor's problems and ready to lend a friendly shoulder to cry on when the going gets tough. Wow, this is so powerful. I'm sure that a lot of you here in Nomad Nation who are listening to this relate in a way or another to this powerful quote. So this is really amazing. Is this book available on Amazon? It is. It is. It is an academic book, so it's a little expensive, but it is worth every penny. Okay, very good. So I'll put it on the show note page of this episode. And Sarah, when you read this and you tell the story, I uh, really, it makes me think of your story and your own story and the fact that you have your own blog and what you do on the side in the magazine. So could you tell us more about your blog and that magazine briefly? And what is it? Yeah, of course. My blog is just my personal blog. It's castelluzzo.com. And I started it way back when I was so frustrated with getting my husband Italian citizenship. And we were going to government offices every single day. And it was, I could barely speak Italian. And I was having to eat gelato after every time just to keep myself together. <laughs> so anyway, but it's, it chronicles the whole story of everywhere I've lived. But um The Hedith magazine is a newer project. It's just, we started it last year. I and a group of other uh, globally mobile people here in Amsterdam. And what it is, is a digital magazine. It's nonprofit. 
And it basically, it's all about telling stories, the story of migration, the story of finding home, um, the story of making home. Uh, and it's, it's very much this heart project for me. And so we have uh, poems, we have essays, we have art, uh, visual art. And we also, if you happen to be in Amsterdam, we do events as well a few times a year where we do storytelling, live storytelling, uh, music, sometimes poetry, um, art. And then um, we also have a podcast. And the podcast might be my favorite part because we interview people from all over the world who are just any type of migrant. So it could be a refugee. It could be uh, an expat spouse like you. It could be um, just anyone, a student, or um, even sometimes TCKs, just someone who, is, who has had to find home elsewhere. And that's what, that's what Hiraith means. It means longing for a home that no longer exists or that never was. And so it's all about exploring these concepts of home and what it really means when you don't have a fixed place that you've always lived. How do you make home? How do you find home? What is home? Wow, that is so interesting. I can see that you live your global nomadic lifestyle in every way, <laughs> in, in every way you can. This is so interesting. So, Hiraith, uh, how, how do you pronounce it again? Hiraith. It's actually a Welsh word, and I'm sure all of us mispronounce it. So, I'm sorry to any Welsh listeners. Um, please Wonderful. call in and tell us how it's How did you find this name, Hiraith? Um, it actually, Monica. Uh, who is the who was kind of the founder she brought a group of us together and said hey let's start this um she came up with the name i think she was just searching for words that had to do with home and so actually the funny thing is saudage which is the the name of the project the archive is doing has a very similar meaning it's portuguese and it's this longing for something absent something something that you can't have Wow, this is amazing. So I'm going to put all of this on the webpage of this episode. And thank you for that, Sarah. Thank you. It has been just a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, I loved it. So the Nomad Nation, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check out the show notes page with all the information you might need. So thank you again, Sarah. This is so inspiring. Look forward thank to you. following your journey. <laughs> and I yours. Thank you. All right, Nomad Nation, I'll see you at the next episode where we will talk about how you can make your business portable and what is actually a portable business. So stay tuned to turn your challenges into great opportunities.